0: Bibles. Let's go to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24. We read it corporately last week, and as uh, you are flipping there, um, it's good to see you all this morning. And uh, I have been on the road a lot this summer, so I'm just thankful to be with uh, my church family today. A couple of announcements uh, for you to know. Um, around Mother's Day, you may have grabbed a. Uh, a baby bottle uh, to fill with change for the Choices Clinic here in Laurel. It's a, a, a organization that we support—a ministry organization on the front lines of of life. And uh, just got a, a reminder this week: if you haven't turned those in, please go ahead and turn those in. We're not the only church that maybe maybe behind on some of that. But uh, just a reminder: if you've got a baby bottle at the house, uh, that br- bring it back next week so that we can uh, we can get that turned in. Um, Next Sunday's a big day for uh, for two reasons for us as a church. First off, uh, we got a fundraiser going on, and uh, there will be different fundraisers that pop up for uh, our education building. We're raising funds, and as you give faithfully to be able to uh, construct new space, we're really excited about that. After uh, next Sunday morning, smashed and loaded, great potatoes, they got a fundraiser, and uh, they're gonna actually be here uh, making that for you. Shelby Wimpigler will be in the lobby uh, when the service is over this morning, so you can go ahead and, uh, and sign up for, for that for next week so you can get lunch. Secondly, next Sunday night is uh, our family meeting. We've started having these uh, once a quarter, and we're going to have a family meeting here at 5 o'clock. Got a lot of stuff to share with. Next Point's going to share um, some other things that uh, we're, we're going to share with you um, as pastors uh, in the life of the church. And then after, we're going to eat, and then... There's going to be a water slide for kids, and then we're going to shoot off some fireworks, okay? So uh, it's going to be a great Sunday night, next Sunday night, the 23rd, starting at, uh, at 5 um, o'clock. Pray for our kids, our kids and our uh, children's ministry team and chaperones. They're in Alabama today um, at Talladega, not to race cars, but at Chaco Springs um, to be able, uh, for, for kids camp, they get back early this week. I you know, some of you may have uh, less people in your house, so enjoy Uh, Maybe 30 extra minutes of sleep during the night. Anyway, Psalm chapter 24. While you're flipping there, we are in a series this summer called Psalms of Summer, where we're just looking at different psalms. We actually read this psalm last week, and uh, so I I thought it was appropriate for us um, especially you'll see some, tie, some ties in with the Lord's Supper as, as uh, we get ready to take the Lord's Supper later in the service. By the way, the R team so thankful um, for you to be able to share, thankful that we're ascending church, and I'm just going to put him on the spot. Daniel will preach very soon from here because he can do it, okay? He can do it. Amen. Anna's giving me that look. She said, i got to live with all the anxiety leading up to it, right? But, yeah. We have multiple pastors, and I'm thankful that um, it says in Timothy, right? You got to be able to teach. So um, I'm just thankful for, for Daniel and Ryan leading that team and uh, for, uh, for everybody just going. And so you know who we partnered with in the DR. We support them monthly um, as a church. And so, what a great thing, the local church here to help the local church there. Psalm chapter 24 is where we'll be. Let's read all 10 verses. Notice it says, that this is a psalm of David. The title of the message today is The King of Glory, which is the theme of this psalm. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart Who does not lift up his soul to his faults and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Father, we ask for your blessing on the reading and preaching and teaching of your word. Lord, help me to communicate faithfully your word. Holy Spirit, I pray for unction and clarity for us to be able to grasp this specifically, Lord, how this psalm just speaks of Jesus and how we will celebrate and remember his sacrifice in our place for our sin in a few minutes. So God, as we look at the psalms this morning, help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 24 is a really, really cool portion because it, it is almost at the bookend of three different uh, themes in the psalms. I was in a hermeneutics class in New Orleans Seminary. My professor, Dr. Parker, walked in one day and he said, hey guys, I saw something this weekend and I hope it blows your mind. He said, in Psalm 22, I see a cross. In Psalm 23, I see a tomb. But in Psalm 24, I see a resurrection. And I was like, that's really good. If you remember, Psalm 22 begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus was on the cross, he announced that not just to tip us off that prophecy was going down, but to let us know what was going through his mind and heart, what was was happening. In Psalm 23 that Justin looked through, what, two weeks ago? You'll remember in the middle of it, there's a valley of the shadow of death. But there's an upbeat here in 24 where the earth belongs to the Lord, where we're invited into God's presence, and then the psalm ends that we just read it, this triumphal procession of victory and conquering as the king of glory, not a king of glory, the king of glory, takes center stage in a procession. Scholars have called Psalm 24 what, they, what you might call an entrance liturgy. As I, as I told you, David wrote it, and so some people have tied it to two different events in the Old Testament. David may have written this in, after the events of 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you go back and look in your Old Testament, in early in 1 Samuel, the, the Israelites were treating the Ark of the Covenant, that great testimony of God's presence and God's name that was kept in the tabernacle. They started treating it like a, a good luck charm. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 4, they bring it up to try to because we got the ark guess what we got god's presence and guess what the philistines defeat him the ark gets captured and it spends some time in philistia when god begins to inflict plagues on the Phil- on the philistines and after he'd already shown his dominance over the the, the false gods of the Philistines. They put the ark in their temple to their god Dagon. The, The statue of Dagon falls one night. They set the statue back up. The next night, it falls down and its hands are smashed. And they're like, whoa, this ark and this god of Israel is something else. So they send the ark back to Israel. And it stayed there outside of Jerusalem for a long time until David came. And David had this desire to bring this great emblem and symbol and picture of God's presence back. And so in 2 Samuel 6, he brings it back sacrifice and dancing. And David says, I'll even be more undignified with this. He cared more about God's presence than he did what people thought about him. So it stays in a tent that David makes for it. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, the ark after Solomon builds the temple is brought into the temple. So David possibly wrote this thinking about the symbolic presence of God coming back in the city, and then Solomon with a solidified temple bringing the ark to its permanent resting place where God had said, I'll set my name there forever. Why do I give you all this intro? Because you need to to hear the psalm this morning as a desire for God's presence above all things. And what it does is this psalm recognizes, check this out, that God is willing for human people like you and me to be in his presence. And at the same time, God is willing to bring his presence into our midst. And this is what makes the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ completely different than any other deity ever come up with in human history. He was not invented by people. He created us. And this is what makes him unique. If you scour world religions, you will find transcendence or nearness. You will find power or love. But in the God of the Bible, you have both. A God who's transcendent above all things, who rules and reigns, and everything's under his feet. He controls everything. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He inhabits eternity, and yet, guess what? He draws near to the one who seeks him in truth. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent, and yet he's compassionate and near. He's a God who forgives, and yet he's a God who judges. There is a perfect balance in the moral attributes of our God. And that's what Psalm 24 says. Derek Kidner, who wrote, wrote uh, a great commentary on these Psalms, he divides the Psalm this way verses 1 and 2 is the all creating God, verses 3 through 6 is the all holy God, verses 7 through 10 is the all victorious God. Another commentator noticed it like this because God owns all things, we can enter into his presence, and because he is over all things, God can wants to meet with us where we are. This psalm is the contrast in the meeting place between God's eternality and our mortality, of God's amazing presence and the fact that we should just be amazed that we are invited into it. I want to give you three truths this morning. We're going to camp out in the second one, but I do want to mention these three. So what is the Psalm talking about with the King of glory? First, I want you to see the King's presence is everywhere and all belongs to him. Verse one and two, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. Now we've, we've brought this to your attention before, but notice in verse one, Lord, in your English translation, we'll have a capital L and then a small capital O, a small cap R, and a small cap D. What's going on there? What's going on here is we're being reminded by the English translators that this is a reference in the Hebrew to God's holy name, the unpronounceable name of God. Some people say Yahweh or Yahweh or Jehovah or Yehovah. We don't know how to pronounce it, and that's a good thing. Translators, when they would translate... And the scribes would translate oftentimes to feel the magnitude of this word that they would write. They would get up from their desk. They would go and wash themselves back in the day when these scribes were copying the Hebrew before they sat back down to pen this name because so much weight attached to it, so much glory attached to it. And think about the Israelites in a day where the Philistines have their God, the Canaanites have their God, the Ammonites have their God. What a claim this is, is that not only that the earth belongs to the Lord, but check this out. The Lord belongs to the earth, not in a possessive sense, but in the fact that he is ruling and reigning over all things. It's saying that there is not one inch of not only this earth specifically, but this world and this universe that is not under his command at this moment and does not belong to him. There is not one rogue molecule in this galaxy, in any galaxy. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The entire earth (laughs) and every little specific part belongs to him. Isn't it amazing when we think about that God's presence is everywhere? Now, Somebody might say, well, that's a dark place, or that's a God-forsaken place. The Bible even teaches us that God's presence is in hell. Did you know that? Revelation chapter 14. God's presence is there in full-fledged wrath. And there's places probably in this earth that we might say are God-forsaken. They're not God-forsaken. Guess what? God is present there in judgment. Aren't you thankful this morning that if you're in Christ, that God's presence is With grace and mercy and love and faithfulness. He's faithful to us because he's faithful to his son. Notice that the second half of verse one it says, the world and those who dwell therein. So not just the physical order, but every single person belongs to God. Now now let me let me make a, a clarification here. We should not in our evangelism encourage people to make Jesus the Lord of their life. That's not biblical. Christ is the Lord over every man. It says that Christ died and rose again for this purpose, that he would be Lord over all. You see, in this life, if we acknowledge and submit and surrender to the fact he is Lord, that means forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, justification. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord whether or not you acknowledge it or not. And you see, that's why the gospel, the call of the gospel is submit now, surrender now, plea for mercy now, because God is gracious to offer it and receive it. It's a reminder this morning, if you are right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you are running from God, guess what? There is no place that you will not run that he is already there. Can I encourage you this morning, possibly as a Christian, if you're dealing with guilt and shame and you're thinking that you're running from God and you're trying to hide from God, guess what? When you get there, he's already going to be there. If you're running in sin, guess what? Wherever you run, he's already going to be there. God's omnipresence is an encouragement to those of us in Christ, and it is a terrifying reality to those of us who are outside of Christ. the text says, the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. Then in verse 2, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. How does it all belong to him and why is he everywhere? Because it all came from him. He founded it. He established it. He started the physical creation. He started your life. And the idea here is that the seas and the rivers would be chaotic were it not for God's intervention. God not only started it, God sustains it. So what that means is, is that God not only began the world, but he upholds it right now. Hebrews 1 actually says that it is Christ who does this, that Jesus doesn't juggle the galaxies in his hand. Christ says, do you think, stay still, rotate, supernova, you're done, black hole, pull in some stuff. By the word of his power. This isn't some lowly, meek, nice, just trying to get along with everybody. Lord, this is the God who upholds the universe. His presence is everywhere and all belongs to him. Now, in this psalm particularly, why is that important? Because if this is an entrance liturgy, and if they are bringing David's writing this to reflect or to look forward to the ark coming into the city, what that means is is that everywhere that God goes, it already belongs to Him. Everywhere that God is, He's in control. God has a right to your life. God has a right to your time. God has a right to your thoughts. Because everywhere you live is in his presence. And so then as we move on to verse 3 through 6, I want you to see this. Secondly, those who truly seek the king meet him on his terms. There's a procession going up. They're going into Jerusalem. Here comes the conquering king. His presence is coming to the city. Well, the natural question is, who can join him? Who is welcomed into this? I told this story recently, but growing up at Highland Baptist Church, every December we had to live in Christmas tree, right? Just shove it into a room. It's huge, right? It's massive. Well, when we were teenagers, we were always gentry, we were always the security detail for the wise men, okay? So there were so many people that came to that, they would give out tickets. They were free, but they had to give out tickets. Well, one night, one of my friends, he's, he's a doctor, he's not in this room, but he shall not be named, um... He, uh, by the way, is Dr. Adrian Sims. I'll just go ahead and throw it out there. Okay, so, so Adrian calls me and and one of my good friends, Clint Tucker, and Clint and I are detail. Well, Adrian came to get into uh, just to watch living Christmas tree as a teenager, and every local church has one. Don't look at them, but that person that like rule follower and rule follower wouldn't let him in the back. He didn't have a ticket. He was like, "I'm a member of this church. Got to have a ticket." I, so he calls us and he says, hey, I can't get in. They won't let me in to watch. We just like, we got to fix, bro. Meet us, meet us around back. Because we were like mid of the program, middle of the program. So we, we, t- we bring him in. We let him in the building. We take him upstairs to the choir room. Off the side of the choir room was his costume room. We found the dude a costume. Now, at the time, he had like a broken wrist. So we took leather and we wrapped it around his cast so that he looked all first century legit. You know what I'm talking about? Found him a spear, found him like the, you know, the poofy guard pants. Our time comes, he walks in our detail, we walk right by that lady and we just smile as he enters in. He was in the program that night. How do you get in? And here in, in in Psalm 24 the entrance into this procession is meeting the prescribed terms. And guess who sets the terms? This king of glory. What are the conditions? Verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Now, now keep in mind the Temple Mount. So, so a, a geographical rise is in the minds of the people. They're going up. This is why we have the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 121 through 134. They would sing these as they went up to the Temple Mount. And so this is what's happening. They're ascending to the temple. They're going up. Even when the tent was there with David, it was a geographical rise, and so they're going up. So the idea is, as God goes into his dwelling place, how can I go with him? Because I want to be where he is. What's the terms? Here they are. He who has clean hands, that's one. He who has a pure heart, that's two. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false, Three and does not swear deceitfully. Four. Now the terms are listed there. If you want to be in this victorious procession and end up in God's presence, here are the terms. Clean hands, pure heart, don't lift up your soul to what's false, don't swear deceitfully. Let's just break those down real quick. Clean hands, what everybody can see. Clean here is the idea of not guilty, innocent, no bloodshed, Nothing, no obvious sin done with the hands. I can see my hands, you can see my hands, everybody can see my hands. Same way for you. So the idea here is, is there anything obvious externally that would keep me from God's presence? Then he says, a pure heart. I can't see my heart, you can't see your heart, not the four chambered muscle that pumps blood throughout our body, but what? The will. The control center, what we love and pursue, the compass, all of that. That's what's encompassed here. And notice, it's got to be pure. The inward part of us that nobody can see, the the closets in our life, the attic, the basement, the, the places where we throw everything when people come to visit that nobody can see. That's the heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false. The word false there in the Hebrew literally means vanity or emptiness. It literally means like nothing. Good old Jones County word, nothing. The idea here is that I would walk up to nothing and give myself to it. This is idolatry. That I would surrender the very part of me that God has given to me, that only belongs to him. The part of me that I would set my affections, the direction of my life, my worship, that I directed at him, I have taken that away, and I have gone to something else, and I have offered myself, and whatever it is, it can be. Hobbies, people, talents. You know, people and materials. People make great friends. They make terrible gods. Materialism, hobbies make great things to enjoy. They make terrible gods. The worship of your heart was only direct to be directed at one person and until you directed at that person, you will forever be unsatisfied. That might possibly, this is off the cuff, that, that might possibly be one of the torments of hell. It's because you are forever unsatisfied because you refuse to worship the one that you were created for. See, in him... We find satisfaction. We don't lift up our soul to what's false, and we don't swear deceitfully. That is, that we speak the truth, not lie. Jesus said, what, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so here it is, clean hands, pure heart, does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I want you to see first that that God demands absolute perfection to be in his presence. I'm in trouble. Anybody else in trouble? If that's what it takes, we're in trouble. My hands were unclean this week. My heart was impure this week. I found myself at moments directing my attention and being worked up in a tiz over that, which really didn't matter. I think I've not sworn deceitfully this week, but I dare not say that as reality, lest I swear deceitfully, right? Right? Can I just tell you this, American? God does not lower his standards to, for anyone. He doesn't. To be in his presence required these things. To be in his presence now requires these things. And oftentimes we can make little special rules for ourselves, little fine print that God really doesn't care, that we can get away with it, that God is is gracious and merciful. No, check this out. To be in God's presence demands absolute perfection. Let's quit and go home. Enter the gospel. No one can ascend the hill of the Lord. No one can stand in his holy place because no one has clean hands. No one has a pure heart. No one does not, no, everyone lifts up his soul to what's false and everyone swears deceitfully except one. And you see the perfection that God demands. Here's the good news. God has provided in Jesus Christ. The righteousness that God demands, God has provided in Jesus Christ. When Christ came, clean hands. When Christ came, pure heart. When Christ came, he lifted up his soul to God alone to do the will of God and never swore deceitfully. You know why you and I metaphorically can ascend the hill? and stand, not just crawl, not just lay on the ground and feel like a worm. But the, the, the question is, who, who can go to where God is and, and who can stand there? This is the one in Revelation that says we can't stand in his presence. This is the one in First Timothy who dwells in unapproachable light. So people like you and me, sinners like you and me, can not only be where God is, but we can stand in his presence. We can meet him. We can join him. Yes, you know why? Because the king of glory, before ascending this hill inside the city, he ascended a different hill outside the city. Think about this. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, was treated as someone with an unclean hands and an impure heart and an idolater and someone who speaks forth lies. And he was put on a cross in our place for our sin so that if we were to believe in him, his perfection, his cleanliness, his purity, his pure worship, his truth would be transferred to us and all of our filth and impurity and sin would be put on him. This is the gospel. Now, this is how God gives us this purity. First, we will call this positionally, because this is a wild statement. You see, when we're made righteous, we're made righteous. We're sanctified. We're set apart. God gives us the righteousness of Christ. God looks at us as if we had never sinned. God is able to forgive us. God is able to keep his standard. And check this out. We're right before God. Not on the basis of what we've done, but what he's done in Jesus Christ. But, lest we think that the battle is over, that everything's done, what do we find out once we have been set apart? Man, there's a whole lot of junk back up in here, right? This week, 17 years, got married. It's Saturday, right? Yeah, Saturday. She's giving me a thumbs up. See, on my real one, it's got the date on the inside. I already knew the date, but these ones, you can like lose these, and you don't lose the real thing, right? Um, So when I put this on 17 years ago, I, I set myself aside for one woman, right? But guess what? 17 years later, I'm still learning what it meant. And those of you who've been married a while, you'll say, hey, bro, you'll keep learning what it means, right? Amen. We are set aside where we are put in relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are made clean, but guess what? We are continuing in that relationship. We are continuing to be made clean. We have been declared righteous, and yet guess what? We are being made righteous. We are set aside as holy, and yet, guess what? We must grow in holiness, and this is what God does. God sets us aside positionally, and then he sanctifies us progressively. You must get this, and this is why. The last three weeks, and we're gonna, you're going to get it next week, so if you don't want to show up, just trailer of things to come. What's been on my heart to preach on. And, and I looked at Justin this week. I said, Hey, I may go three weeks in a row. And he went rock on brother. <laughs> I told him staff meeting this week, you know, you know, one Sunday I told him, I said, Hey dude, I feel really bad. Like I'm gonna be on the road and you know, and, and, uh, this is just how pastors talk. Hey man, I'll be on the road and you're gonna have to preach like three weeks in a row. He's like, bro, I used to preach like 50 weeks in a row. So thank you. Thank you. And we appreciate you as a church allowing us to do this. But I, I said in staff meeting Wednesday, I said, okay, the next, the next three weeks or this week we'll, we'll get through it. But probably the next two weeks, guys, we're, we're going to look at Psalm 51 and we're going to look on sin. You know why we're not holy? Because we put up with sin. You know why we don't progress in the Christian life as we should? Because of sin. Now, check this out. I'm not going to bring out something and beat us down. But guess what? I want God to call me out on the sin of my life, even if I don't like it, because he's the king of glory. And these things would prohibit me from enjoying his presence as much as I should. And it comes down to it. Do we love the king of glory more than our sin? Look at the blessing in verse 5. The person that has clean hands and a pure heart. So not only has been set aside, but somebody that pursues purity of heart, pursues casting down idols, pursues truth, pursues clean hands. He will, not might, he will receive blessing from the Lord. How many of you consider holiness a blessing? I want to be like Jesus. All right and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Sick and tired of people saying they want more of God, and yet they hold on to more of sin. Probably true in my life. Sick of people cutting on the presence of God on and off, and then going and doing as they please. You see, here it is. If we want to meet with God, and we want to be in his presence and recognize that and enjoy that, we meet him on his terms. Glorious thing about our God, all that he demands, he provides. All that he calls us to be, he takes the initiative. Daniel prayed a minute ago, Holy Spirit, you've got to do this. My role is to wake up every morning and say, oh God, what a wretch I would be, what a wretch I'll continue to be. But you have set me aside, and you are committed to make me holy do it. Yeah. The old Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane used to pray this, God, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. That should be our prayer. Aren't you thankful that he went to the hill first? Aren't you thankful that he took your sin in shame so that you could be clothed in his righteousness? Finally this morning, as we segue towards the Lord's Supper, I think this is Important for us to see the only appropriate response to the king is full and absolute surrender. Lift up your gates. It's a picture of a city. Lift up, you heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So notice this, in 3 through 6, is us joining him where he is, but in 7 through 10, it's this idea that he's entering where we are. Scholars don't think at this time that the gates of Jerusalem would have, like, gone up, like in a vertical fashion, like we see in the Middle Ages, or King Arthur, Camelot. They would have swung open. Well, Well, what would cause them to say, lift up, be lifted up? It's this idea of submission, that when the king comes, guess what our response is? We lift up. We look up. We don't see God as our BFF on a, on a horizontal scale. We look up and we see him as the king of glory. That this king who's victorious, who's been strong and mighty in battle, who's defeated our enemies, he's coming in. And we recognize his rule. We recognize his right to rule. And who is he in verse 8? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So what's our response in verse 9? We lift up, we lift him up. The king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of heaven, the all-victorious one, the one to whom everything is beneath. He's the king of glory. Now what's amazing here is two pictures I want you to see, one individually as a Christian and another as the corporate church. First is, historically, this psalm was also sung on Ascension Day. Can't you picture what heaven might have been like when Christ ascended on high? Conquering death, hell, sin in the grave. As he approaches the gates of heaven. And not a psalmist, but the son of David sings the psalm of David. Lift up! Your heads, O you gates. Swing wide the doors. And the voice inside heaven comes back Who is this king of glory? And Christ, the ascended, victorious one, enters in and sits down on the throne. What a picture. That Christ is the one. That the universe and the fullness thereof and all the people in it belong to. But in a very personal sense, think about the reality of regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the very fact that the king of ages has made my heart, and if you're in Christ, your heart, his throne, his place, where the kingdom of God is established in us. You see, inside of us is the king of glory. And not just that, he dwells within his people corporately, this is the amazing thing about the church, and this is why we always emphasize the church, and this is why when we take Lord's Supper, it won't be pitch black in here, because we look around and we say, guess what? King of glory is in you. King of glory is in you. The king of glory is in you. The king of glory is in you. And the only response is, Lord, possess every part. The parts that are still being worked out, make them more like Christ. God has me. He has my checkbook. If God has me, He has my clock. If God has me, He has his, has my hobbies. If God has me, He has my relationships. And you see, that's the attitude here. Because the ark is now being brought into the temple, <laughs> it is symbolic that every house, every inch, every corner of the city belongs to the Lord. So it is with you this morning. Aren't we thankful? That we have a king who just doesn't own one part of our life, but he exercises dominion and authority because he purchased our entire life. Do we desire God's presence? Do we desire him to be recognized as king in every part of our life? I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to transition towards the Lord's Supper. Let's bow Father, we thank you that you were willing to not only enter Jerusalem, but to enter our hearts. Lord, we're thankful that you not only ascended the Temple Mount, you ascended Mount Calvary. God, we're thankful that when you died and rose again and went back to the Father, the gates of heaven opened up to your presence. And Lord, we're thankful really the only Right response is to surrender everything. Lord, I pray for those in this place that don't know you, that God they would feel their helplessness, but Christ's all sufficiency to make them right with God. God, I pray for the believer, that Lord we would end making our own terms and our own rules for ourselves. God, we would meet you on your terms. Lord, it blows our mind that you would be willing to meet with us and love us and stick with us and be patient with us and gently but boldly and patiently conform us into the image of your Son. But, God, we thank you for that. Lord, as a church, we want to be people that love your presence, that see you as a king, not as a co-pilot, that see you as a ruler, not just as a, a little friend, a sidekick. God, I pray for my own heart. Lord, as now as we reflect back on what makes all this possible, the death of your son, we thank you that we can celebrate it as a church. We're thankful that we can look to the king of glory and we can say, Lord, we belong to you through no act of our own, simply by your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last several months, as we approach the Lord's Supper, we have approached it this way. Kennedy, if you could put up that last slide. So I want you to keep this in mind as we get ready for the Lord's Supper. This morning, we're looking back, and we're looking back to remember Jesus' sacrifice. Why are we here? Because he bled and died. He wasn't forced to. He willingly offered himself we're going to look up and we're going to be thankful and thanksgiving. Lord's Supper oftentimes is solemn and and it, and it should be as we reflect. There's an attitude of thanksgiving and praise that God, you are so good. We do need to look within ourselves. Remember, this is not a paranoia that I forgot something that I did Tuesday morning, eight years ago. And This is not, remember, unworthy participant. None of us are worthy. This is unworthy participation. There's something in my life that's obvious. Do I have beef with somebody in the congregation? Is there something I need to get right? So there is an aspect to that. Then we look around. And the fact that I'm not the only one partaking of the Lord's Supper today. There's a congregation of people. And guess what? We can unite Nothing unites us. We have nothing in common except Jesus for all of us. We can celebrate that. So in a few moments as we come forward and you'll be bumping elbows and getting out of people's way, guess what? These are your brothers and sisters, and we celebrate the suffering and victory of our Lord, what? Together. And then as we take the Lord's Supper today, we can look forward to the fact that one day what we see now in faith will be seen and realized in sight. We will see him face to face and we will be with him for all eternity. I just want to ask Justin and Casey and Blake if you guys would come forward to prepare. So let's just sit in prayer just for a second and uh reflect. And then uh, in just a moment, I'll ask us to stand and we'll come forward and and uh, take the supper together um, as you get ready to pray. Here at Cross Point, you don't have to be a covenant member of Crosspoint to take the Lord's Supper here. We just ask that you're obviously a born-again believer in Jesus and you're coming forward as best you can with clean hands and, and a pure heart. So let's pray. Let's look through these, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.